Welcome to the Spirit Lake Wellness Podcast. Today, Dr. John Ewing and Kathy Kocher discuss quality of life when living with a terminal illness. Hi, John. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing fine. How are you, Kathy? I am doing really well. I, I really wanted to give you an update uh, after our last conversation where <clears throat> we talked about pain and uh, my cancer diagnosis and spirituality and a few other things. And yeah. it's, been a, it's been a while since we've talked. Yeah. Um, life-changing conversation last time. Um, just really, just really, I, I, I'm not taking opiates anymore. I'm taking Tylenol every five or six hours, mm-hmm. where before it was every three or four. And um, I'm not, I'm not in pain. Excellent. And and the the doctors are like, what what? How are you doing that? I said algebra. <laughs> algebra. <laughs> and then I and then I quote what David said last time about you know pain times resistance equals suffering. And, Yes. So I just have to accept that pain is going to be part of the process, and what I can control is <clears throat> how I manage it and how I react to it. So right. it's been yeah. really helpful. And then also, I think uh, one of the things we touched on was the functional aspects of using pain medications mm-hmm. to improve your function. That you're not going to eliminate the pain completely, but the idea is to be able to use it to function. And yeah, that, that was really helpful because I was so worried about, you know, developing an addiction to an opiate. Right. And I could see it happening, not because I liked how it made me feel, but because I really liked being pain-free. Right. Um, and that's one of the other things we touched on was the importance of uh, the use of a medication versus the abuse of a medication. Yes. And the use of a pain meditation is for pain. And the object is actually to improve function, yeah. to improve people's ability to be present with others and and to interact and to, to do what they need to do in life. So yeah, it's, it's been really nice to not need the opiates to just get by with the Tylenol because it my my brain doesn't feel as fuzzy. I feel like I can be more present. Yeah, yeah the brain fog. And then yeah. um, I think we also uh, talked about the difference between dependence where you're having withdrawal symptoms or rebound pain or rebound anxiety compared to being addicted. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you have these... Uh, out of control cravings and out of control use behaviors and overwhelming of your plans and intentions to go out and seek out the the pain medication. Yeah. I was I was worried about that and I was worried because I would have that breakthrough pain and I thought well if I get up in the middle of the night and I've got the breakthrough pain and I accidentally take more than I should you know, I, I made sure I kept Narcan in the house, kept it in my purse uh, in case I accidentally overdosed. And realistically, the dosage I had was so low that that was not ever probably going to be an issue. But it made me not be so anxious about it. 
And then I also kept track. I just, and I'm still keeping track. Every time I take a pill, I write down what I took and when I can take it again. So it's just not a question. And what I've been noticing is I haven't taken an opioid in over four weeks. That's it, it really is. I'm very proud of that. And on, on the one hand, when it comes to pain, and in particular, uh, something like cancer pain, it's a matter of what works for you. Right. It's not like, oh, good, you didn't need this. It's like, oh, good, you're not in pain. Right. That's what I really wanted to convey. Yeah. And I, I think the, you know, the extra strength for me, the extra strength Tylenol, and I'm noticing that I'll look, like this morning, I looked and went, oh, I was supposed to take that at six. Now it's eight o'clock. I should probably take it so I can stay ahead of the pain. Right. Um, but I went two hours past when I could have taken another one. And I think, wow, that's, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be as far as my, as far as, as that management goes medication wise. And I think my head is where I'm supposed to be as far as, okay, yeah, that that's supposed to hurt. Although I will say the, the first chemo was, was pretty brutal. And since then <clears throat> the kidney pain has, has diminished greatly. So I think I think there was a confluence of a few things happening that yeah. all kind of contributed to having some relief finally. But the algebra thing has been big. That that's just, you know, <laughs> that cognitive restructuring and shifting my thinking and and detangling, okay, that hurts, what does it mean? Yes, exactly. You know, yes. It just means that it hurts. You know, it, it's not some existential message. It's just it just Yeah, hurts. it's it's yeah. Yeah, when we uh, think about pain, we think about it getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And oh my goodness, that can certainly induce a lot of anxiety and eventually even in what we call writhing or agony. And mm -hmm. that's not what we want. Well, I think it, it was kind of a head game too, where I'd, I'd be thinking, wow, is this what the rest of my life is gonna be? just pain and pain and pain. And and at some point, you know, you start thinking at three in the morning, is it worth it? Not not suicidal, I'm gonna end my life, <clears throat> but more how much do I wanna prolong my life if this is the level of pain I'm gonna be in? And so having the, the pain relief was such a gift just for my mental health and, and how I was talking to myself and how I was conceptualizing having a, a terminal diagnosis. It doesn't have to be horrible. Yeah. yeah, my experience with patients that have a terminal condition and lots of pain, we can generally help them with the pain. We can generally help to reduce the pain so that they're able to, to function, so that they're able to interact with their loved ones and, yeah. and um, not wanna just check out to not you know, experience that anymore. I think one of the worst types of, of pain is from pancreatic cancer, which can create this kind of a boring, like a slow drill, big old drill going into your back. I can remember when I first ran into a patient like that, they asked me, well, should we put in a feeding tube to bypass where the blockage is so that we can give them nutrition? I said, well, sure, you know. And in my mind, I was thinking, oh, they must be very hungry. But the actually, the more helpful answer is no. 
we don't want to do that because that will just give them more energy to suffer with. Um, so then that concept of, of uh, functional quality of life became more important and more valued as opposed to the quantity of life. Those are sometimes, you know, difficult conversations. I had one of the, the residents that I worked with had a patient who had lung cancer and his mom would just not uh, let him make him DNR. And so he would come to the hospital and get intubated and be on a ventilator and just over and over and over again. And this poor resident was was in the hospital with this critically ill patient that he was obligated to continue to treat in spite of it not making any sense because it's just prolonging suffering. Yeah. And uh, at the end of it all, uh, yeah, he just didn't want to have anything to do with hospitals. Uh, he just went to, went to work in urgent care. And, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I can see that, you know. But, yeah. I think end of end of life is is so um, end of life stuff is we we don't talk about it a lot. Yeah, I know. I, did, I just had a, a therapist friend of mine come by to visit, and um, <clears throat> aside, that's one of the gifts of this diagnosis is I'm I'm really connecting with people again that I haven't seen in a while. I'm making time. Uh, scheduling visits, having people come over. It's, it's you know, yeah, we sit and we mask and it's a little weird, but it's just been such a gift. So this, this woman came by the other day and we had a nice visit and she mentioned that she's going to get certified to be an end-of-life doula. And we talked about how, you know, this has been such a taboo subject for so long. You know, you just don't talk about death and dying, but yeah. you you kind of need to. And I shared with her my experience a few years ago of going to a death cafe that a friend of mine was running in town. And what an amazing experience that was just to be given permission to talk about death and dying. And that, that was something I needed to do around my father's passing. And um, I've thought about, I've thought about, should I make an effort to go again and talk about mine? And then I thought, I think I'm in an okay place. But knowing that there's that resource is is super helpful you know hearing you talk about it from the medical doctoring perspective and and then my perspective is so different because you know i i come to you to keep me alive and help me feel better and and is that always the ethical right thing to do it's a tough call yeah i i support what people want and one of the things that's kind of amazed me is that oftentimes oncologists won't have some of these conversations with their patients. They'll instead direct them to the next uh, possible treatment and the next, and there's, uh, there's always something we can do. It's seductive. It is, it is. And, and I can see how it, it greatly decreases anxiety. Yeah. The my treatment plan right now is to um, do do these three week cycles of chemotherapy, uh -huh. and then do immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. And um, the testing came back on the tumor sample, 
and the, the, the two markers that needed to be positive with high numbers to be a good match for immunotherapy uh, were both negative. And that was devastating. I was, I'll still yeah. get a little cheerful because uh, that was the hope. That was the hope yeah. that it buy me yeah. seven, eight years, you know. And um, we're still going to do it. It's still part of the treatment plan, but it it is less hopeful. So that's the seductiveness of, you know, there's always something they can treat. There's always something they can do, but there's yeah. not there's not a cure. Yeah. And so it's really that cost. Sorry, I'm having a hard time. I don't want to cry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, be be yourself. Be present with me. It's okay. John, it's still it's still close to the bone. It's being in that system that I don't think anyone is going to say, "Okay, now we need to stop." Now you need to just go home. Yeah. And and I would imagine from a, a doctor's point of view, that's a hard thing to say. In a hard spot to be at. I know from my perspective, that'll be a hard place to hear. And I also don't feel like I'm there yet. I, I don't, you know, I can drive my car, I can go get groceries, I can, you know, think and yeah. function. Um, yeah. But I'm also aware that, that you know, this, this has moved fast and will probably continue to move fast. And chemo is not, not a whole lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of restrictions and limitations. But um, as far as an, an update went, I just really wanted to say, hey, the pain, the pain is Excellent. so greatly reduced and that has made my quality of life so much better. And it had so much to do with what was happening in my head. And uh, that connection was really strong. Good. Yeah, it will just keep moving forward. And then one thing that, I noticed that you've talked about here that is actually pretty useful for a lot of people is that Tylenol actually works. Yeah. You know, a lot of people don't think that Tylenol works, but the uh, the, the painkilling effects of Tylenol, yes, people have, have uh, compared it to morphine. Um, it, it, I have to say it was- of, of oral morphine. Yeah, I, I was surprised and impressed because, I misunderstood the instructions in the beginning, and I thought I was supposed to be taking these these little oxycodones every four hours, and then supplementing with Tylenol if needed. And that it was not doing a thing for the pain. And then I took an extra string of Tylenol, and it was like, within twenty minutes, I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> this is yeah. where I need to be. Yeah. And then I told I told the the nurse about it, and she said, "Well, I told you to do the Tylenol and just take the oxycodone if you need it." I said, "Oh, I wrote down the exact opposite thing." <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, it's uh, it's interesting. People don't realize that the the opiate pain medications are actually a little bit old fashioned compared to the anti inflammatories and the effects of Tylenol. So that raises a question, and I know we're, we're kind of going a little off topic here, but it raises the question, how much of cancer pain is is inflammatory? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it just seems like that's what it's acting like. And I've also noticed, because I'm diabetic and I check my blood sugar um, on a continual glucose reader, um, my metabolism has shifted. Um, I know that cancer likes glucose. 
And I know that I now need to eat something every three hours. Mm -hmm. um, my blood sugars are amazingly good um, because the cancer is pulling all the glucose out of my blood. Um, I feel like every time I eat, I'm feeding the cancer, which is not a good feeling. Um, <laughs> but I'm I'm also going. Wow, I'm I'm having low blood sugar. I have I wake up two times during the night because I need to have a snack. I've reduced the amount of insulin I'm taking. I'm down to I was taking two metformins in the morning and two at night. Now I'm taking one in the morning and that's it. Um, I took my my long acting insulin from 28 down to 16. I'm using my short-term insulin, was taking eight to 10 before meals, and I'm taking four or six. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's not because I'm eating better food, I, and I get the function of the cancer changing my metabolism. Yeah. That's totally anecdotal. I don't know if there's any science to back that up. There is. Yeah, there is. The so yay, we found a cure for diabetes. <laughs> well, uh, actually, yeah, um, it, it's, it's an aside, but uh, diabetes, uh, we have a syndrome of insulin resistance, mm -hmm. which often shows up as high blood pressure, sometimes as gout, atherosclerosis, um, high blood pressure, I think I said. And then there's carbohydrate intolerance, where the blood sugar rises after a meal and then stays elevated longer than you would think. And then there's diabetes, which is where the fasting glucose is elevated. Yeah. And so at the point that the fasting glucose is elevated, that's when we call it diabetes. Yeah. And that's evidently when the effect of insulin is not sufficient to suppress the free fatty acids in the blood yeah. and the presence of the free fatty acids in the blood trigger gluconeogenesis by the by the liver and so then the liver starts making sugar even though you're not eating it your your liver's making it <laughs> yeah it's strange that <clears throat> the glucose sensor uh, which i I have the kind that you, you put on, you wear it for two weeks, and then you put another one on. Take the one off, put another one on. Uh -huh. That has been a, a game changer for me, seeing how when I eat something, because it checks every, I think, every five or eight minutes. Uh -huh. And you just get this continuous line of where your blood sugar's at. And it's like, oh, I need to not eat that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can or, tell when that happens. We've yeah. got this concept called the glycemic index, which is, how how high and how rapidly your blood sugar rises after eating this particular type of food. Right, right. So it's it's very interesting. It's very educational and learning a lot from it. And, you know, now, you know, if it goes high or it goes low, my phone makes an annoying sound and lets me know. And then I can then I can react and respond to that. But, but it also makes the same annoying sound when I'm more than 20 feet away from my phone. So it's like, oh, okay. yeah. but, um, okay. but it's, but it's been interesting to, to look at the metabolism shift because of the cancer and the fatigue because of the chemotherapy and just how, you know, it's, it's just, it's just interesting how my body is changing. One other thing that I've noticed that changes 
when people face circumstances such as yours is priorities. Yeah. What is important? And one of the things that keeps us apart is anxiety and shame. And one of the, if there is a beneficial aspect of going through something like this, is that a lot of the, the stuff that's not important falls away. Yeah. And oftentimes it's those barriers to connecting heart to heart with other people. And so we can actually end up less alone under these sorts of difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've, I've noticed that I really don't care if I work remotely. That's not as important to me as it was. But boy, I sure love looking at my calendar and seeing this person's coming to visit this day, this person's coming that day. I went to a, a art and craft group on Saturday for two hours. And, you know, I was the only one there wearing a mask, but it was like, hey, I'm going to be safe and worked on some things. And <clears throat> just really, um, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it really peels off the layers of what's not important. And for me, finding what is important is the relationships with other people, time with my kid and his wife and time with close friends. Yeah. And, having those deep philosophical conversations and music. I, yeah. I just I just love making music and not not the angry beating on the drums that I was doing at the beginning of the diagnosis, but now now just kind of working on guitar chords and and um, just having a good time. Yeah. And, yeah. I yeah, it's it's interesting what um, so there's, there's a lot of advertising out there and a lot of us get caught up in this, um, in these priorities that actually maybe aren't that important. I was wondering what kind of uh, priorities you've noticed that don't seem as important anymore. Um, I'm no longer focused on the next thing. Um, the next thing I want to buy, the next thing I want to have, the next thing I want to make, the next thing I want to do. Um, with one exception, I, I would really like to figure out how to go to um, Oregon State and uh, an Alaska cruise that includes Glacier Bay. I think that would be really cool. But that's more than a week. And right now I only have a week off between chemo treatments. So that would be yeah. tricky to figure out how to make that happen. And I've done it once, so I've got pictures and memories. So, you know, yeah, it would be nice to to get to Oregon State and see my see my stepmom. That would that would mean a lot. But I'm also struggling to figure out how to get to Reedsburg, which is an hour and a half away, to see my mom. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> figure that out. Um, but the the shopping, the saving, the planning. You know, I wanted to have solar panels on my house and have an electric guitar and a. a you know, rapid charging system in the garage. And it's like, yeah, that's that's not on the agenda anymore. That's not important. And I, I pull out my bucket list, which is in a corner of my brain. I don't actually have it written down. And it's like, some of those things are not going to happen and they don't need to happen. And I can yeah. just take them off the list. Yeah. And, you know, that, that alleviates a lot of pressure and anxiety. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we're not only we get stuffitis as we go through life. We get all this stuff. 
And then it's like, who owns who? Do we own the stuff or does the stuff own us? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Talk about a millstone around your neck. I have had such a sense of freedom in giving things away. And um, <clears throat> some things I'm, I'm putting up, uh, some friends are having a benefit for me because I have some medical expenses I wasn't expecting, uh, Cobra co-pays for my insurance and things like that. Uh -huh. And um, part of the benefit is a silent auction. And I thought, you know, I've got, you know, art dolls that I made that are just sitting in a Rubbermaid bin. So I've got those out and am kind of making them look like they weren't spending a lot of time in a Rubbermaid bin. And, and I've made a lot of jewelry and, and it's like, okay. So looking at those things, but then also having people over and having, you know, like one friend said, you know, oh yeah, I just love crocheting. And I said, really, do you ever crochet with wool yarn? She's like, oh yeah, I love working with wool. I said, oh, I got a deal for you because I spin, I spin wool into yarn and I don't like working with it. So I've got a whole bunch of it just stashed. Would you take it? Because then that'll create space for me to spin more, which is the part I enjoy. So it yeah. was a win-win. She was happy. I was happy. So now, yeah. I, now I'm spinning again. And that annoying lower right back pain is back. And I'm like, oh, that was from the spinning wheel. <laughs> that's not related to cancer. That's related to poor posture. So, <laughs> so now I switch my feet and problem solved. But okay. Um, but just, you know, and, and saying to people, is there anything in my house that you would like to have? Because I would feel bad if I gave it away. And 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 having those conversations with people and prefacing them with there's no wrong answer. There's yeah. nothing you can say that'll be offensive or wrong. And yeah. then people are like, oh, that's good because I was so worried I was gonna say or do something. It's like, no, we're good enough friends, you don't have to worry about that. And then so you can just feel the tension dissipate. Yeah. And there's uh, in addition to stuffitis. People also accumulate routines in oh. their life. All these rituals that we do that seem so important. And then, yes. <laughs> are, oh, wait, maybe maybe I don't have to do that. Maybe. And I, I had a friend over the other day, and she said, is there anything I could help you with? And I said, you know, I really need to strip my bed and put clean sheets on. And because of the way it is in the room and how tall it is, um, it's hard for me to get that one corner of the fitted mattress off and on. Could you help me with that? And she's like, oh, yeah, no problem. And as we're making my bed, I'm realizing there is a right way and a wrong way. <laughs> and I live alone. It's never been an issue. And I'm like, oh, you got to put the zipper end of the pillow in first on the pillowcase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this the end yeah. of the world? No, of course not. Am I too yeah. set in my ways? Probably. Is it a routine? Yeah. Yes. And I'm realizing that there's a lot of things. My son comes over. He always wants to do my dishes, which is lovely. But then I can't find the dishes because he puts them in right. different places. <laughs> it's like, no, the blue one goes under. No, it doesn't have to be that way. You can punch. Yeah. It'll be okay. But yeah, exactly. Finding that rigidity and that routine and that that um, staunch independence. It's liberating to turn loose from a lot of that stuff and a lot of those routines. 
Yeah, I'm still working on that one, Doc. <laughs> there's, still, there's still some there's still some points where I'm like, no, that's this is the right way to do it. <laughs> gotta do it my way. I've been doing it this way for years. You know, and it's like, nope, you gotta let it go. That's not that's not important. It really isn't. And 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 it's one of those things that when you when you can let it go, it just makes life that much better. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Good point. So that um that brings us then all the stuff that it turned out not to be so important. And then you and uncovers things that are important that we didn't get to that we always put off and and never did and and now become more valuable and important maybe you could share some of the things that that have become more valuable i i think the relationships and the friendships have become a lot more important and valuable um because work always subsumed them you know, yeah. work was always the most important thing, um, partly because of the nature of the job. You know, I, I made a difference. And, you know, it was hard to say, oh, I'm going to take some time off to do this or that. I said, no, no, you got to work. You got to work. Yeah. And and now it's like, yeah, I can't I can't really work. Um, and what I am doing is just kind of putting hours on the clock. But um, it's not meaningful like it used to be. And then what is important is reconnecting with people that I haven't seen in so long and having opportunities to do relationship repair. Yeah. There have been a couple people that that just, um, I think because of the, the benefit, um, I had to come out on Facebook as having a, a terminal diagnosis when the, when the benefit announcement went out and people, um, a lot of people reached out which created opportunities. And I didn't have that many people in my life that I felt like I had to do relationship repair with, but there were two. And one of them reached out with some donations and that was a great opportunity to just have some, some really good interaction. Um, and another was an ex-boyfriend who I, I just called and said, hey, just wanted to let you know and and now we're reconnecting at, at that friendship level which was always solid you know so that that part's nice and then my brother who we have a very um conflicted relationship oh and he's he's reaching out and i'm i'm not going to say reconciliation has occurred because there's a huge trust issue around that but um being aware and creating opportunities for him to feel engaged, I'm I'm open to that. So yeah. he's so he's connecting with the people that are running the benefit to to do something because we're we're doing a, an open mic part and then two bands and then the silent auction. You know, so that part has been has been pretty cool. So those those opportunities, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have made them happen. I hadn't made them happen. Um, yeah. So this has created the opportunity for those things to happen and to have that that relationship repair, which which I think is good because those were things that I just think about and it'd be like, oh, that feels awkward. I just didn't do yeah, yeah, you know, what are we gonna do? You know, just yeah, let there's it no reason to put it off. 
Right, right. Now it's like, yeah, you know, if if not now, eh, it might not be ever. So gotta just jump on it when you when the opportunity presents. So there's that too. It's just that sense of, oh, I've always wanted to go there. Well, you know, maybe I just should. <laughs> Because I, I don't think this diagnosis, I don't, I don't think this diagnosis gets better. I, and I want to hold on to hope, and I yeah. want to expect miracles, and I, and I want to be in that space because I got a lot of people sending me good energy, positive energy, prayers, and I, I don't ever want to discount the power of all that. And I also want to plan for the worst. Thank you for listening to the Spirit Like Wellness podcast. Spirit Like Wellness is a 501c3 dedicated to health and wellness education. Learn more at spiritlikewellness.org.